I'm here with Pastor Jason, uh, our wonderful lead pastor, and Pastor Jeff, our Cornwall campus pastor. My name's uh, Terry, and uh, I have the privilege of being our campus pastor at our Canada campus. And, uh, and we're going to explain in just a moment why we're here, what we, what we want to do. But uh, today is March the 2nd. I am so excited that we're here in March, uh, even though it's minus 18 outside. But uh, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Jason, just quickly, before we jump into the, the meat of this podcast, what is the one thing you're most looking forward to this spring? Well, one thing I'm, one thing I know that I, uh, that you guys have over me is you'll have playoff hockey in the spring <laughs> and as a sense fan, I won't. So I, I am looking forward to one day watching that. And I know, I know there'll be hockey this spring, but I'm looking forward to that. But I think just getting outside, driving, you know, walk and visiting socially distanced, even in pandemic, I just find winter tarred because we're housebound. And uh, so the limitations, so even just getting outside, socially distanced visits, all those things, just, just getting back outside uh, with others. I'm looking forward to it. Well, to piggyback off of that, um, looking forward to, to hockey, playoff hockey. And so what I'm looking forward to is having a reason to have my hopes dashed when the Leafs, you know, don't do what we expect or hope in the playoffs. You know, this year, here they are, first place in the league so far. So it builds your anticipation and expectation for something amazing. And yet, uh, you know, there's also that fear of, you know, oh, is it going to be like every other year where, you know, they fan out and, you know, I have no, no, uh, no luck in the playoffs. But I'm, I'm loving the fact that the Leafs are, are doing well in uh, – and blanking teams they just blanked the oilers two games in a row so that's that, that was pretty good um beyond that i would echo just being outside it is just on my backyard is three feet of snow so it's not even like you can't even do anything around the property or walk around so i'm looking forward to being able to to be outside and um and uh, take in some things like that so probably that same thing yeah I what about you terry brother, what are you looking forward what? to I texted my brother. I said, I think I'm ready to be hurt again. Like I'm ready uh, for the, for hockey. And I'm just hoping that the, uh, the leaf playoffs this spring is not like, you know, a spring where it comes in like a lion out like a lamb. I'm kind of hoping that we have a spring that's in like a lamb out like a lion. And that can sort of describe the leaf playoff run as well. But I think what I'm most looking forward to pastor Jeff is uh, playing on our softball baseball team together. So most people, I think, at Light Center don't know that uh, Pastor Jeff and I are teammates on uh, Ottawa's best softball team known as the Angels. <laughs> uh, but we're going to go into our fourth season together and uh, looking forward to that. But you all are probably wondering, this is the, since this is the first time we've done this, why some pastors who talk for 30 minutes every single Sunday feel like they've got to talk some more. And uh, one of the advantage for us being a multi-site church is that on any given Sunday, we have one message that is shared by three people across three different campuses. And, you know, what I kind of sense about who we are as Life Center is that on Sunday morning, it's like a highway. But yet on one highway, we have these different lanes and our campuses are like different lanes that you can, you can be on this one highway together, yet we're all driving down this highway together in different lanes. And the beautiful thing about that is that us three, we all have our own unique communication styles. 
And not to mention like every single week we approach these topics that we've talked through with their own unique perspective. And so you can have one message that gets communicated in three different ways. And so there are things like, Pastor Jeff, you get to share in Cornwall that someone in Canada might have the benefit of hearing but if you only hear me speaking every single uh, Sunday morning, you're only getting to hear one of those perspectives. You only get to drive in one of those lanes. And so that's really what we want this podcast to be about is the opportunity for people who attend Life Center to get to drive in different lanes. And uh, just if you are new to this podcast as a pro tip, every single Sunday, uh, we are now uh, recording all three of our messages. So if you're really bored, if you got a lot of time on your hands, you can listen to all three campuses uh, so go ahead and do that. I, I dare you. Uh, but I also think, uh, and agree, uh, let me know what you guys think, that we realize that there's only so much we can share in 30 minutes. And so we want this podcast to be a conversation, not just about what we're sharing, but why we shared it. And I would love to even let our listeners see how we personally are being impacted by some of these topics. And so we just want to dive in so to uh, this past month. Uh, sermons that we talked about on Sunday. And so, as you may or may not know, uh, we are we have been in a series, a year-long series called uh, More Like Jesus. Uh, but specifically for this past month, we've been looking at uh, what does it mean to love more like Jesus? And we've been looking at several of the Old Testament characters that we all grew up with, for those of us who grew up in church. Um, but we've been contrasting that with the love of Jesus and uh, seeing where our love Ultimately, it can have good intentions, but because our love is fallen, it is flawed, it falls short, many, like many of the people in the Bible, the Old Testament, but ultimately we look at Jesus' love, which is perfect in every way, and ultimately our heart is for our love to move towards his love, so that our love can be complete and be perfected. And so uh, there's a quote that has put this current series into context uh, that some of us may or may not have heard already. That comes by a pastor in uh, Toronto. Uh, his name's Bruxy Cavey. And he said that whatever it is that anger and outrage are helping you accomplish, love will do a better job. And I'm just curious, what does that quote mean to you both? Yeah, if I, if I jumped in there, I think, first of all, I think it's a fantastic quote. Um, and really succinctly, for me, ultimately, love alone builds best. That's what I pull out of it. It doesn't mean that I can't get outraged or angry because there's plenty of things that I think that in this season that are outrageous and that are unjust. And so I'm not saying that we can't. I love it because it's not saying we can't be angry or outraged because I think that's a part of it. Um, but I think just vulnerably and honestly, I know there is such a thing as righteous anger because I see it in Jesus, but I don't trust myself with righteous anger because honestly, when I get angry, sure. I can spin it, um, but there really isn't much righteousness in it at all. Like when I look back at my, whether it's as a man in my marriage, uh, in, in leadership with my kids, just at the world, when I get angry, I would not have that synonymous with righteousness. So ultimately for me, love builds best and love builds longevity. Whereas anger, I think an outrage is great for maybe deconstruction and things that need to be pulled down but ultimately only love builds up as Corinthians talks about. So that's what I get out of that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. I think similar line as far as like, there's so much within a culture, uh, which raging in our culture as far as like um, the polarization of ideas right now that, that um, 
anger, rage, you know, everything from cancel culture and everything like that, that just that scream at us, like, this is how to solve the problem is to, is to approach it with this level of rage. And again, like Pastor Jason was saying, there's, there's a self, there's a righteous anger. And then there's like a self-righteous anger. And that idea of self getting in the way of that righteous anger is, is often hard for, for us to be able to handle. And for me, the part of what the quote does is it just reminds me again of what Jesus said, right? His, his commandments to, you know, this is what the biggest commandment and second biggest, right? Love God and then love others. Right. And if, if everything hinges on those two things, loving God and loving, then a quote like this just helps keep driving me back to that concept of, every decision I make, every, every, uh, every, every time I step into the pulpit to teach or whatever, how do, how does what I communicate, how do, how do I want to live that exemplifies that love and encourages that love and really asks us as a church to live out that love. And so that's really what, what it does for me is like, how do I respond to the culture around me? How do I, how do I look at even what I teach or talk about and go, you know, how do I look at, how do I my family uh, first and say, how do, how do I lead a love first rather than um, using anger or outrage or um, a variant of, even if I wouldn't use maybe those words, but, uh, you know, scale towards, towards that with, you know, how do I not leverage, um, say, disappointment with my kids in order to get them to do what I want to do, you know, instead of like, like having those feelings come through, how do I allow love to come through towards uh, leaning into the things that I want to see, the behavior that I'm looking for, or, you know, the preferred future I know that God has for them? How do I not like allow the, like, the other side of it to take over, but I allow love to lead the way and do a better job? Yeah, and I really, you know, I really find that anger and outrage, you know, I think the point of the quote is that it's not necessarily always wrong to be like it's not like there's never a situation where outrage and anger is not appropriate but i, I sense that it's always the easy way out you know that love mm -hmm. is the harder option and i think that we are we become so trained in our culture i don't know about you but i, I know for me to like always seek the easiest path of resistance and kind of go hit the easy button and you know like anger and outrage like it you don't need to get to know the person on the other side when you're angry with them. And we really don't know each other anymore. I sense like as a cult, like as a community of the people. And so I think it's one of the reasons why you see anger and outrage, especially on social media, because you don't know the person on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And, and, you know, the very first message in this series was about Jonah. Now, I'm really glad that that was a Sunday where I didn't have to speak on Jonah because I don't like the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is a, not because it's not a wonderful story, but it's a, it's a story that often hits very close to home. And uh, it's a story of Jonah running from God. And Pastor Jason, you contrasted that with the story of Jesus and the parable of the talents, how uh, even the one who is given the, the one talent in a way by burying his talent was running from God. This is a this is a really tough question, but 
what do you guys see uh, are some of the greatest temptations to run from God today in our culture? You know, and what are the ways that are we being tempted to run? Yeah, I think I think that is something that, again, is as old as the story of Jonah and as relevant as what we're all walking through, you know, in 2021. Um, I think we're always tempted to redefine God, you know, to create a God of our own understanding. Um, you know, and again, the story of Jonah really is he he doesn't love that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger towards those who he hates and um, or towards his enemy. And that's a, that I can identify with that wholeheartedly. I can identify just even with that challenge and, you know, in that wrestle. Um, so in terms of culture, that's not something that's out there. That's something that lives fully in my heart. Like that's fully close. That's not far away. That's really close. And for personally, yeah, in my late teens and early 20s, you know, I'm in my mid 40s now. But then I wandered, you know, and became lost. Uh, not necessarily, I didn't lose my salvation, not that sense, but but I was definitely lost and bewildered and disillusioned. Um, and ultimately, when I step back, like I'm thank you, I'm so thankful that God, you know, runs alongside and rescues and redeems. But I can see there's a thread and a pattern in my life that um, when I'm in pain and I, or I don't want to deal with the pain in my life, this is where I'm vulnerable to the posture of running. And I can run in relationships, like I can just backpedal and withdraw, and um, or I can even do that with God. And so for me, that's that place of vulnerability. In my early twenties, yeah, I just became like disillusioned, frustrated, because I wasn't dealing with pain in my life. I was blaming, I was accusing, I wasn't dealing with it at all. And so it just built up. And then I felt the only thing I could do in a in a metaphoric sense was to was to run. But there's that's a that's a cycle in my life in relationships. And even in my relationships with culture or with God that I have to really be careful of, you know, I'm a sensitive person. So whenever there's lots of pain that I'm not dealing with, um, yeah, I can see that cycle show up like Jonah and I just want to bolt in the other direction. I think in a cultural sense, um, like there's, you, you can try to pinpoint a number of different things that people uh, run from God today, but I think, like if I were boiling it down to, one of the things I think that people have a problem with is running from uh, just the idea of responsibility. Just running from, like you see it a lot, and it can play out in different ways as far as how we blame others or, like you know, to have some type of get out of jail free card for ourselves. But we 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 run from the responsibility, and which is really in a, in a way running from God as far as. Uh, just the accountability of of who we are supposed to be, whether you're you're in a relationship with God or not. Just the idea of running from responsibility and how you know God wants us to be um, accountable for our actions. So whether that's like in the story, that's Jonah, you know, running from responsibility to actually extend an opportunity of an olive branch to uh, the people of Nineveh uh, versus the people of Nineveh having the responsibility to respond to their, um, how they were going contrary to, you know, God's preferred path and, and how they were being held account for that. So to me, like a lot of it comes down to, to running from responsibility uh, and how, how we do that. I know I'll do that in different ways. Um, whether that's just coming up with excuses why, you know, even on smaller things like uh, doing some um, some work in my kitchen, repainting some cabinets and stuff like that. And it can be easy to um, to 
like come up with reasons why it's not my fault that I didn't get to the painting I needed to do that evening. You know, this is like a schedule I need to keep in order to allow paint to be there and then to cure and then to get repainted. Just even something like that. I can find ways to be, it's, wow, it's not my fault that I didn't do what I was supposed to do, you know, when it really is like my responsibility. And that may not be a sin issue, but it's definitely a running issue um, that we just, you know, it's that, that accountability. And same thing again with the talents. I think that's where it falls into, right? He had an opportunity and responsibility to, to look at the talents that God had given him and, and then just be running from that. So I think that's a huge thing, the responsibility piece. Yeah, that's a great point. I had somebody actually ask me right after that, be like, what's the deal with the guy with the one talent? Like, did he do something wrong? Like, and, you know, the person was like, I just don't see what he did as being that wrong. And, and I think that was a very innocent asking question because naturally we look at that and we're like, they didn't squander it. They didn't throw it away. They just like protected it. And I think that's one of the ways that I see like the uh, idea of, of ways that we run from God is that we, uh, we almost like trick ourselves into the delusion. We're, we become delusional by tricking ourselves into thinking we're not running even though we are like, I think that that person, that guy who hid the one talent talked himself into the fact that I'm not betraying my master. I'm not disobeying my master, you know? And it was like this delusion. And, uh, you know, we, it's like the person who doesn't want to jump in the pool. So they kind of dip their toes in the water and we dip our toes in the water of obedience. And we, but we don't fully jump in and we think, you know, I, I go to church or I, I believe something, but I'm not fully in, you know, I'm not fully into giving, whether that's my tithe or my time or my, I'm just holding something back, you know, it's like just holding something back, not, and that's the point of the talents was that there was an investment into what the master gave them. They invested it back into something uh, which honored the master it was the holding back. And I think, so I think there are ways that we, we don't even, we trick ourselves into thinking that we're not holding back, but we are and in effect, we run from God. But, you know, if, if you would, uh, and, and, you know, I said that the book of Jonah is a tough book, a book I don't like. I say that sort of tongue in cheek because it's a book I think that is more real to us than we even realize. On the surface, we almost forget that it's a true, like a real story because we were told so often as, in Sunday school about the whale and it was so like almost like a Disney movie uh when but when you read it as an adult you're like this is real this is it's more real than we'd like to think but if you're you know if there's any Jonas out there today and I pray that the Holy Spirit does reveal if there are anyone who just say it's not wrong to be a Jonah I think it's a, it's a very good thing to recognize if you're a Jonah but if there's a Jonah out there today what would you say to someone who is in a season of running right now yeah, I think I would probably just say, like, don't waste it. Don't waste that season. Um, like, learn something about yourself. Learn something about others. And if you're brave enough, uh, you can learn something really special about God. Uh, Jonah had the opportunity, like the parable of the talents that Jesus told. Like, when I think about both stories, they, they're both Jonah and in the parable, they're both guilty of withholding love. Jonah is guilty of withholding love for his enemy, the Ninevites. And really in the parable of the talents, the, the one who in, received the entrustment of one is guilty of withholding 
that investment to be a multiplied difference making in other people's lives. It just lives, basically it's like me, myself and I, and when we're in pain, I think that's a natural thing to like close that, to shutter those things. But I think you can learn something really special about God. I know Terry, you run, I'm not sure Jeff, if you're a runner, I am not a runner at all. But one of the things I do know about marathons and running is um, I think if you're a Jonah in the season and you're running, I would just say courageously let God run alongside of you and then have the courage over time to slowly let God get in front of you and just begin to follow his lead. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing that, you know, it it can be an abrupt turn or it can just be a change in pace. And in my life, that's what I think happened when I was running is, you know, God came alongside of me. He never left. You know, we know that, but I just became aware that even in my pain, as I thought I was running, I just noticed God always present. And then I just slowly, once again, began to let him take the lead and that begin to pace my life in a different way to use that as a metaphor. And so if someone's running, I would just say, yeah, don't waste it. There's lots to be learned in that season. You don't want to get over it. You want to get, you want to grow through it. I think one of the, one of the interesting things about, the two different scenarios is, is the fact that it, with Jonah, there's, there's, there is still a constant connection with God. Even as he's running, there's a, there's a dialogue between Jonah and God versus in, in the, the parable that Jesus says, there's, there was the talent given and then there's no contact until like it's time to, to return the value of that, of that talent. And for me in this season, if somebody is finding them in a place, in a place where they're running, it's, it's about uh, listening for that voice of God. Even if you're running in the wrong direction, even if you're, you're not going to Nineveh, you're going to Tarshish, you're going in the opposite direction, or you're struggling to come to grips with uh, how love is supposed to be um, poured out in your life. And you're, you're like Jonah wrestling with, how do, I, how do I reconcile loving an enemy? Even in the midst of that struggle, be listening and conversing with God. Because I can't think of anything worse than like not being able to hear God's voice and, and talk and dialogue with God through something, uh, uh, even in the midst of it. And so I would just encourage somebody to be, to be listening for God. And if they're not hearing God in that moment to, to like, to find a way to potentially hear where God is in the midst of it and to, to listen for him, even if it's like to start, even if it is with an argument, even if it is in like, but this is so hard and I don't agree with this or whatever, even if it's that, like resume that dialogue with God again, so that you can, you can walk towards where, eventually walk towards where he wants to go. Cause it is tough. Um, it's much better to be walking with God through something and wrestling with God through it. than um, just, you know, like you said, convincing yourself, you're not even running and, and like believing the lie that you're, you're not even trying, you're not even going against what God's preferred um, way of love is. So I'd be, I'd be listen for God in the midst of even whatever, whatever season you're in, whether it's a running season or not, like listening for what God's leading you in. That'd be, that'd be my advice there. Yeah. It's almost like running from God is a sign of God's grace to begin with. The fact that God allows us to run is a evidence of his grace. And I think when you realize that, that God has allowed you to run, 
but if you have the courage to not run, to run now towards his love. And we run from God is evidence of his grace. When we run towards him, it's evidence of his love. And um, yeah, I, uh, I appreciate Pastor Jason, you call me a runner. I mean, it doesn't look like I'm running when I'm out there, but uh, I'll take it. Man, if you're going kilometers, you're running. Like, like I walk to the mailbox and back, and I'm winded. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the next week we uh, looked at the story of David and Bathsheba, and you can't help but feel for the guy because up to this point in the story, his life was going pretty good. It was all uphill. It was all, you know, up, 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 up. And then this moment happened where he committed adultery, and it's important. I think we say adultery. Uh, use the word because that's what it was uh, but from that point on just things didn't go very well for David in his life and doesn't mean that there wasn't a full of, there wasn't moments of redemption in God's grace and God's you know holding to his promises but things circumstances never were never really the same uh, but one of the things we communicated was that David's failure to love Bathsheba and, and everybody in the story came from him being out of position that he should have been at war as kings were supposed to be at war, but instead he was at home on his rooftop. And from that came a quote from a, from one of the, from a writer named Dean Sherman. And he said, one of our spiritual enemies, greatest advantages over the children of God is his consistency as opposed to our inconsistency. And that's like a punch to the gut uh, when you take time to kind of contemplate that. What do you guys think he meant that author by the devil what do you think is meant you know the devil's consistency compared to our inconsistency yeah i think it's a great i think it's a great quote you know again when i think about how consistent david was in so many areas yet so inconsistent in this area that eventually it 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 showed up it manifested itself you know so i have that thought that comes to mind i think again in 2021 we it's March 2021, so even once again, uh, Christian Witness being deeply impacted by a brilliant apologist in Ravi Zacharias, who intellect and could articulate the gospel and graciously uh, unpack it with skeptics, and yet the complete dichotomy of how he lived his life and abused his power and, and harmed multiple, multiple women in such atrocious ways that, you know, like, so when I can see those things, you can see how the enemy, uh, okay, I think I would say it this way. I still think in, in evangelical or whatever word you want to use, evangelical is a terrible word today. And I get that. But I think in the following Jesus and Christianity, I still think we underestimate how cruel and unkind the devil is. And that's not to excuse our behavior at all. Um, but I think we underestimate how consistently cruel he is, how unkind he is, that he doesn't care if we're having doubts about God due to a cancer diagnosis. It's not like he feels bad in that moment to be vicious in his attack uh, when someone is low or, you know, going through a divorce or experiencing injustice. It's not like he backs off because we're having a hard time. And so he's the full embodiment of pride. And so in that way, he's utterly consistent. Um, in uh, his opposing, yeah. in all the opposing attributes of love. So I look at First Corinthians 13 that we referenced, I referenced earlier, like everything that love is, he's the antithesis of that. So therefore he's the antithesis of what God is. And so no remorse, no thought of anybody else, always self-seeking, no low is too low, no lie is too big. Just again, just consistently the antithesis of who God is. And so 
even, even when I read Christian books and stuff today, I'm not talking about being like demonic or devil conscious, but there's definitely like, he's definitely, he definitely seems in the story to be like a side character. And mm-hmm. I think that's a problem. Um, because yeah. again, I think when you look at the havoc being wreaked in David's life, but also in maybe, you know, even to different degrees, whether I mentioned Ravi, but hopefully to much different degrees, even in our own hearts and lives. Um, I think he is so cruel in his consistency and I am not fully consistent. Uh, God is, but my love ebbs and flows, my disciplines ebb and flow. And that makes me very vulnerable. I think if there, there's, I wouldn't call it an, a, uh, an advantage per se, but I think a, uh, a clear sign or a way that the enemy can work against us is in the fact that he is absolutely nothing to hide. He is what he is. And there's no, there's no, I need to cover anything up. He's full of deception at the same time. Like while he's lying and being deceptive, there's no, there's no like cover up of who he actually is in that he, like Pastor Jason saying, he is ruthlessly out there trying to get, get at us. And, and that's just, it's blatant. It's there and it is what it is. Whereas so many times we have blind spots and we, areas of our lives that we're not willing to live fully open you know david was so consistent in so many areas of his life um and yet when you see when it comes to relationships and his marriage relationships this was a blind spot that was that was uh, a minefield waiting just to have that trigger effect go off and see the mines going off everywhere as far as how it affected him and so i think like oftentimes when I look at the consistency versus inconsistency that that our enemy can just be what he is and he doesn't have to worry about covering himself up. He's, he can, he's just going for it, trying to tear us apart because we'll do the work to cover up for him. We'll do the work to, to cover our blind spots and to hide things because we don't want to be living openly and vulnerably. Like David had opportunity before it happened to be exposed when he inquired of Bathsheba, you know, he had a moment where, where they said, isn't that Bathsheba, you know, uh, like uh, Uzziah's wife, like yeah. right then and there, like exposed, you know, being like, you know, for, for just looking at something he shouldn't have been looking at. And he could have been, he could have been like, you're right, my bad. I'm going now. I'm repenting. You know, he, he, he had an opportunity, but instead chose to then conceal and cover and you know then murder and continue to to do things in order to to this area of his life that was a blind spot up until it was in this moment and turned into this place of you know where he seemingly went to a point of no return and, and went overboard with it but i think just our inconsistency is an, our unwillingness to come before God and allow him to, you know, what David said after this, right? Search my heart, see if there is any impure way within me, you know, and cleanse me. Like that was his response after, you know, going through this, when the life of his, 
you know, to, to be born son was on the line when, when God was saying like, I'm going to spare your life, but the life of the son that you're going to have, Sheba, it's going to require his life. In that moment, you know, that he, he's his, in his repentance, it's that full opening and revealing of his heart and asking God to search him and see any impure way. And it's, I think it's in those moments where we're just not unwilling to live in that posture of God, like continually expose the things in me that I'm blind to that can, that can entrap me. So I think that that's a part of our inconsistency is just our own unwillingness to allow God to go in those places and really be, be exposed like that. Which he had yeah. when he was like, he was dancing in front of the Ark of the Covenant on its way back to Jerusalem. And he's wearing just uh, the ephod and he's going for it. And he says to his, his, his wife at the time, you know, another woman, he says to her like, uh, Hey, in the, I'm going to be even more exposed, even more open in the future in front of God and others to, to proclaim his glory. You know, so there was that idea of like, listen, I got to do this. I got to be open and exposed before God and, and do this. And yet in the trajectory of things, he, he moved away from that and, you know, lived in this blind spot and this inconsistency that, that ended up, you know, you know, trapping him. And he's no victim in this whatsoever, right? Like, like making sure we're clear on that. He's, there's no victimization or, or like of anything of David in this. This is all his choice and all yeah. his, his, uh, his doing, but it's, it, it's because he fell prey to that and, and, and wasn't consistent in that and let that blind spot really, really crush him. Yeah. I think a lot of us think that Bathsheba was some stranger that he just wandered eyes on. The way that I sort of imagine it is that he had to have known who this woman was. And, you know, like in the text that you said, Pastor Jeff, like this was Uriah's wife, one of his mighty men's spouse, and the granddaughter to one of his closest advisors. This was a known woman. And, you know, I, I think that inconsistency has like a compounding effect. I think that's the story of David. It kind of builds on a, on itself, and then you just see inconsistency after inconsistency. And it's got this snowball effect, and it just builds and builds and builds until. And you know, I think that the devil's attack is to make us feel like oh, there's no way out. Like there's, and that's why he tried to bury his sin. He tried to, which he he buried Uriah at the front of the line. Um, but you know, my follow up question was like, what are some of the ways we can build spiritual consistency? And I think we, we both have like alluded to it. I have written down here the word, oh, just one word, honesty, honesty. And like honesty is what breaks that compounding effect. Because I think that's what the devil, he is so honest, as you mentioned, he's so brutally honest in his conviction and knowing that we are so brutally um, dishonest in our inconsistency. And to break that, con that snowballing effect, it's honesty. And that's David's story was, when he finally became honest before the Lord and before Nathan, you know, that all of a sudden that consistency returned to his life, just that honesty. And so I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts, but that would be my encouragement to anyone who just feels so inconsistent is just honesty. Like, like be honest before the Lord, be honest before someone else, confess your sin to one another so that you may be healed. And uh, so I don't know if you got any other suggestions or thoughts on just building a life of spiritual consistency yeah i 
I really, I agree with that. I think it's practice spiritual disciplines in transparency with others, in honesty, like you said, with others. You know, when you think about David's life, it was only really when Nathan as a prophet confronts him with truth and love doesn't always feel comforting at the time. Like it, it calls us higher. It speaks to what is. And, um, you know, I heard Erwin McManus once say, and this goes back like 10, 15 years ago, I heard him say that there's no level of accountability that will make you the person that you don't want to become. And I think that's very, very true, because in the church, we're great at talking a lot about or around accountability. But at the end of the day, we all know, I can deceive any accountability system, measure, like anything around, but walking in full transparency with others and honesty with others. Um, we can't do it alone. I think that's one of the biggest things is, you know, David was so vulnerable because he processed all of that alone. Um, you know, and it wasn't until after he was caught that others really got involved. But yeah, I think it's so essential that we have people that, like you're saying, can be honest and truthful, genuinely truthful, even if it hurts, even if it, even if it wounds and even if we disagree. But um, you know, again, as a, as a pastor, there's criticism that comes to my life. Surprise, surprise. There's criticism that comes and the person's motive may be wrong. Um, but there's threads of truth in, in a lot of the criticism that it's really hard to hear. And sometimes like I got to take deep breaths to hear it. Um, but you know, the, the, the coach can speak words of truth to grow me up and the critic may be trying to harm me, but it doesn't mean necessarily what they're seeing is wrong. And so, but that's hard stuff, but I think it's important. Yeah. And I, I think back to even how, like, say, for instance, where maybe tipping point was for David in this scenario, like, you know, when it talks in, in Samuel, Second Samuel there about like, it came time for the kings to go off to war. And it, and it says, David sent Joab, you know, like, when it, whether it comes to walking with people and being consistent, uh, how can we build that consistency is like, there's a part of it is like, it's not about a legalism of do the things you're supposed to do, but it like, there's a part of it is that like, like pastor Jason saying the spiritual disciplines that we engage in. And um, I think if there's one thing that the, the new Testament, uh, especially in Paul's letters strives to bring out is the idea of unity and how like the, there's any quality amongst all of us that there are no Kings there's no Kings in God's kingdom other than Jesus. And so how we approach working this out and building who we are and um, establishing our lives should be done with a, this deep humility and equality with others that we're not put in these positions where um, like we talk about with a uh, Ravi Zacharias, where we become untouchable, where we, we, we like rise to positions where like nobody can question us where David was, where nobody could question him. It took, it took Nathan, a prophet, like the one person probably in the kingdom that could come to him and call him out on something. Like, we don't want to leave it to the point where there's, there's nobody in the country, but one person who can, who can speak truth to us and have us actually hear it. And so there's just that idea that like as a body of Christ, where it's, it's 100% supposed to be done in unity, um, again, with that humility and that openness uh, together. And then we just protect ourselves from that. And again, it's like you said, it's only 
you, you, you can only have the level of accountability that you want to have because it, accountability doesn't work by somebody else always calling you out. Accountability works by you living exposed before people and you, uh, you calling yourself out to others. Anytime your accountability is set on somebody else having to come after you, it's not because it's all, it's all reactive. It's all almost after the fact, you know, you have an accountability partner who's going to call you up after, you know, if you have like protection stuff on your computer and things like, which is great. I'm not saying don't do those things, but those only catch you after the fact versus, you know, protect you from like when somebody else learns of something you may have done that was improper. So the idea is like, how do we live in this posture of like, before it even gets to that point, I want to have somebody in my life that can, that I can be honest with and open with and walk things out. And so that unity that we need to have in that level it's like the cross may have been on a hill, but it, it's, it's flat ground at the, at the foot of the cross, you know, we're in front of Jesus. And we have that level of that posture of humility with others that we don't think higher of ourselves than we need to, which gets us in a lot of trouble. Amen. So <clears throat> then we came to the story of Hannah. She's a great woman of faith. And uh, she cried out to God, of course, in her moment of pain. That's what she's remembered for. You know, you hear pastors, I think all three of us said, um, you know, pray to God in moments of pain. You hear, always hear spiritual leaders say that, but somebody may be wondering, why should I pray in moments of pain? And especially if maybe the answer is not the answer that I'm going to get from God. Like, why should I go to God in prayer, even if the answer is no, or maybe the answer is yes, but why prayer? Mm. Yeah, I think why prayer you know is is such a it's not a difficult question to answer from your head it's what you just said in asking the question is it's the it's the confusion and it's the compounding of the heart and that's where hannah is such a powerful uh, inspiration but also story right like she she is not she is not just barren like literally by the other wife, by Paniah, she's being mocked as a result of her barrenness. Like it's, and I can imagine the pain that's in her heart. And so pain for me to answer your question directly and succinctly, pain, pain always brings you to a fork in the road. And sometimes I've deluded myself that like in pain, which seems to be a thread we're talking about today, um, like I don't have to choose or I can just stay, but, but I'm always choosing to go somewhere. So why prayer in pain is because ultimately going to God is, I may not get the answer that I want, but I can get the help that I need. I can like, I can get the leadership that I need. I can get the comfort that I need. I can get the help that I need. And so for me, why prayer is, it's just a place of submission to place of surrender that, like ultimately there's one who sees the whole of my life. I just see the circumstance. I just see like the glass dimly. And so for me, prayer is not so much to get my answer. It's not to get my way. Um, it's to get direction and it's to trust that there's a way that's greater than it's to get a different perspective or else I just stew and live in that space of pain. That's a great that's a great answer. I'm not sure how much I can Im improve on that. Part of me just thinks almost like, um, like, like even when you hear in the Psalms, right? Like where it's, where they call out and they're just like, 
where else am I going to turn? Who else am I going to go to in these moments? And it's, it's just echoing that idea of like, we're all going to turn somewhere. Um, you know, I, I even like just think of even how, like when, when Jesus in, in confronting his disciples and like when there was a tough moment in front of them and Peter responds and says like, well, where else are we going to go? Like you're God, like who, wh- where else can I go to get, what we need even if even if this kingdom unfolding that that we anticipated isn't happening the way we thought it would even if you're you're totally messing with what we thought it looked like to see the messiah come and his will be done even if you if it doesn't meet what we thought it was you're still god there's nowhere else i can turn to to help in this situation and so i I, like to me that's that's it like where else can we go and so everything else is going to be a cheap substitute to what God can offer. Even if it's in the midst of our disappointment that we're not getting the healing or the resolution or the restoration or reconciliation that we are looking for, where else are we going to turn in those moments that's going to bring us through to the other side? Yeah. And I think it really does recall to us, what is our definition of prayer? Like what, why are we praying? You know, I think a lot of us <clears throat> fail to mature in Christ. And one of the reasons for that is just we only see prayer as an outlet to get God to do what we want God to do. And yeah, there's an aspect of that prayer is about asking, you know, asking you shall receive. You know, if you have enough faith, you can ask God anything and you will receive it. Uh, but also, you know, prayer is about firmly rooting yourself in who God is, and allowing him to speak to you. And so... I think there's an important place for prayer in, and that lies in the story that ultimately the story of Hannah points to, and that is the story of Jesus and the parable of the unwicked, the wicked judge and the widow, in that because God is not like the unrighteous judge, therefore, there's always a therefore, we don't have to be like the widow. I just, I really walked away from that week being like, wow, like we, we don't have to be like the widow. Doesn't mean we don't have to believe that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. But we don't have to bang on doors and break windows. And, and actually one of the, the, the judge says that he's afraid this woman's gonna like, <clears throat> I think I badger her. There's some sort of word, but it translates like punch me in the face, like is the translation. Like he is worried that this woman's gonna physically assault him. <laughs> and, you know, we have to, we don't have to be like that. We just really can trust. We can really cry out to God and just express. So I, I think it comes back to just having a, a, an understanding of what prayer is beyond just what does prayer do for me, you know, and that is God's great gift to us as a gift of understanding who he is, the understanding of knowing his voice in the midst of pain. Is There's something about prayer when you say amen, that you can just be comforted knowing that God is in control. And that's what I sense in the story of Hannah is that she gets up from her prayer she cleans up her face, she goes and she eats, and it says her face was no longer sad, even though she hadn't got her answer yet. You know, I know Eli said, you know, go home and, and kind of gave her a good signs of things to come, but she didn't have her answer. She went home and she wasn't sad anymore because, you know, there was, after pouring her heart out to God, you know, there was this, this belief that God, I believe that, there, that she believed God was in control. And so, you know, just our last sermon was on, that's past Sunday, uh, February 28th. And it was the story of Samuel. And, you know, it's interesting. Hannah's story is one defined by her calling out to God. 
and God answering. Samuel's story is defined by God calling out to Samuel and Samuel answering God. And I believe that our ability to hear the voice of God is correlated with how open our hearts is to his love. Yet, there's so much noise in our culture today. And there's so many voices that are coming in. And the, it just feels like, I don't know about you guys, but it feels like the volume of life, and the amount of voices is just the volumes cranked, both in the amount of voices and the intensity of that voices. And it impacts our spiritual, I think it impacts our spiritual health in so many ways. Um, but what effect do you guys have? Do you guys do you guys see the, you know, these voices in our life? Do you see it impacting our spiritual health in any way? And just to follow up, like, how have you guys learned to tune your heart to the voice of God and sort of tune out the other voices? Yeah, I think, I think it was this Sunday or this past Sunday, right, where we encouraged people to, like, literally count up um, all the different voices that they have in their lives. Um, Oh, I don't know if we just froze there. Are we all back? Just a little moment. Okay. Yeah. So I think, I think uh, there's a little edit moment there for us. It's all good. Um, no, but I do think, I think the volume of voices today is unhealthy as like smoking unfiltered cigarettes was a generation ago. It's not like you can put filters on them. They're better. I'm not saying that, but <laughs> it's literally, it's literally this place um, of looking and again, this Sunday, we encouraged everybody to add up like all the followers on social medias or all those things. When you actually look at how many voices we let influence our lives, it's pretty extraordinary. And so to think that's not going to have an effect is really great. So a, a deep effect in our lives, I think, is profoundly foolish to not say that's going to affect my life. And so two things I would say first is we, we're doing this as a team together, but every voice, I think, should have equal worth, but not mm -hmm. actual equal weight. And I do think that's an exercise of being able to determine um, it takes great humility to identify the voices like, shoot, I'm overly influenced by that voice or that person's voice actually has a probably a disproportionate weight that I don't want to admit. And it may not be the people that you think. And that's the th where it takes humility to really openly admit that. Um, but again, I think it goes back, like, how do you tune your heart? How do you more prioritize God's voice or the voice of those that you that know you is goes back to what we said. I do think spiritual disciplines are vital with heavy doses of confession and humility to receive feedback or understanding, you know, like that, like what Proverbs talks about, like the, like the wounds of a friend in love, like when they can speak truth or tell truth, like those are important things. So again, I, but I do think the volume of voices um, is overwhelming. And I think it can't, I think it, I think it doesn't affect our spiritual health. I think it affects our emotional health, our mental health and our worldview. And so I think, again, I think a generation down the road, is going to look back at this time and view it very much like, you know, the internet, the way we have it is like, we were smoking unfiltered cigarettes thinking <laughs> it's not going to harm us, but it's producing cancer. So, to, you know, metaphorically, so to speak, I actually yeah. think that a lot of the mental health issues and spiritual health issues, like, yeah, you can't go anywhere now without, you know, at least 10 to 15 to 20 voices chiming in on something. And that's paralytic. Yeah, I think it's um, to, to borrow like almost like a sports, a sports analogy, um, especially leaning into like even what you're saying there, Pastor Jason, about like every voice has, has uh, you know, 
equal worth, but not equal value. And some of that even goes into situations, right? I think of like, a, if I'm watching a, a football game, right? And like, we can pretend that the stadium is full of fans again, right? The quarterback needs to hear the play being called by his coach. And he needs to be able to hear that because they got the microphones in their headset. And there's a there's thousands of voices in the arena that are screaming at him. And not every one of those voices is calling in a play, you know, for him to run in order to execute the offense the way he wants to, or the defense the way they need to. Not everybody has like, but does every fan and every person in that stadium have a voice that has value and has merit towards the team? And do we pay attention to all those voices? Yes, of course. You know, the only reason why they're playing the game is because those fans are there. And so in our arenas of life, there's going to be different times where different voices are needed in different moments and all the other voices need to be tuned out, need to be like, not that there's irrelevant. They're just, they're just not relevant for the task at hand. And they're not, and they're not going to be of any benefit to the task. And does not mean, you know, you ignore those voices because when that, uh, that quarterback is walking past all the fans and they want to get a, a handshake or a high five or like, you know, an autograph or something like that to ignore those same voices in that setting is going to be very costly for that athlete. It's going to, it's going to, it, like it may not seem like it's all that important, but it's it's immensely important because their whole situation is based off of the ability to entertain people. And so I look at it and go in our lives, like knowing which voices to listen to and when we should listen to those voices is is very important. And we got to find a way to. Um, there was a movie, an old movie that would date myself, a movie about. Uh, baseball player and he would use this phrase where he'd say clear the mechanism and he was a pitcher and he'd hear all the fans and he just wanted to almost like have silence in his head you know uh, and he would like do this thing and to try to like I guess a modern day interpretation would be like the airpods we're all wearing right now using the noise cancellation feature if you have the airpod pros you know like being able to switch it over from like enhancing the, the sound around you to putting the noise cancellation on so you can only hear what you need to hear. There's that moment where we need to do that and like be able to hear God's voice so clearly compared to all the other voices around us. My wife hates when I have the noise cancellation feature on because she can't get my attention. Likewise. I tell her, I tell her, I said, no, 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 I can hear you very good as I like hold down the AirPod so that it turns on to the, turns on the microphone. You know, how do you, <laughs> how do you tune your heart to God's voice? You know, I think we live in an echo chamber. Like I know we need to throw that word around. We all live in echo chambers. And I think one of the best ways to, to, to tune your heart to God's voice is to listen to what comes out of your own mouth. Like to take the, try the discipline of actually listening to yourself of what you speak. But I noticed that during this pandemic, like I'm saying things that just come out. I'm watching the news and I say something out loud and I listen to it. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound good. Like, where's that coming from? Is that coming from God or is that coming from other voices? And the practice of listening to yourself is a very humble talk. But if you are not liking the voices, that the words that come out of your mouth, you know, from the overflow of the mouth, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think that the best echo chamber that we could live in is the Bible, is the word of God. 
And it's amazing when you spend time in the word of God, all of a sudden now that comes out of your mouth and you will overflow with God's word. God's word will come out of your mouth. Um, if you are inputting it, if the word of God is the number one voice in your life. And so, so, so you just, no, as, you you know, as you're going to, yeah. as you're going to the next question, um, a 10 second story there, literally a 10 second story would be, I have a friend named Jason who rather than try to tell his mom what he was feeling, he secretly recorded her when she was like giving him the gears. And then he basically played back the tape recording to his mom. And when his mom heard how she was speaking, it, cha it, it changed everything in the moment. She didn't intend it at all, but she heard it through a different lens. And so I think that's a really just kind of 10 second story there. I also thought it took crazy courage for my friend to do that. Like, like you're going to get killed. If you were going, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what are you nuts? <laughs> but it worked, it worked in the context at work. Like, but if you're, if you're a kid or a teenager listening to you, like tread cautiously, if you're going to do that tread big time cautiously. Oh yeah. It's a generational thing. I think. Um, it's just, so, I don't think it'd work the other way around too if you tried to do that to your kids. I've been tempted to do that to my kids sometimes when they're like back talking. I'm like, I want to pull up my phone and just be like, you want to hear what you sound like when you're responding to me right now? And then I'm like, this is not going to work well. This is not going to have the effect that I, I, I would, it would have, you know. <laughs> Very careful how you use that one. <laughs> hear God before you use that one. <laughs> wisdom, godly wisdom. So uh, just to wrap things up, we have talked a lot about these Old Testament characters, but ultimately we believe that our answer lies not in these characters, but in Jesus. So I'm just curious, just as a way of closing things off, you know, what is Jesus saying to you right now about loving more like him? And just how would you encourage someone today who's in a similar spot to where you've been just to love more like Jesus in, in everything that you are in all of your life right now? Yeah, that's a big question. You know, for me, it, how Jesus fully sees people, loves them, and then in love leads them, like how Jesus did it for them, and he does it for us today, um, that still takes, personally, that still truly takes my breath away. And so to be more like Jesus, um, I'm in a cycle, I'm learning, I'm trying to learn, lean in to learn how to speak the truth in love. I don't do this effectively or as healthily, I think, as I should. Um, and it sends me into a cycle usually of frustration, which is just this utterly useless emotion. And so to love more like Jesus, I'm asking Jesus to continue to set me free in this particular area. So, right, I mean, it's important to define current reality, right? So owning where you are, not just pretending where I want to be. And then there, make my next step an obedient step. So for me, again, how Jesus could see anyone that we've talked about today, or you can add anyone you want into the mix. He fully saw them and he fully loved them. You know, rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and loved him, even though the rich young ruler had, wasn't going to embrace him at all, but he still loves him enough to lean in and uh, risk rejection. So that still takes my breath away how God does that. And I can see that that's so deficient in my life. And so I just have to allow the Lord to not just love me, but continue to grow me and lead me. Uh, in order that I can love others like Jesus and not like I do today. I think in uh, one of our messages when we were, we were going through, and it was, um, it was talking about um, 
I'm trying to remember the circumstance. It was, it was the, uh, it may have been the series before, the one of the message from the series before, but still plays into the loving more like Jesus. Just in the one where Jesus was talking to the woman at the well and, and, and just where I think what this series has done for me and even this whole season that we've been going through, it's just continually reminding myself where I am in the story uh, and how many times I, I tend to see myself as Jesus in the story versus uh, one of the other characters. Like how many times do I find myself taking on and, and when I read the Bible and when, I, when I'm working through how to live more like Jesus, I'm looking at Jesus in the story and, and trying to, make myself that character in the story rather than seeing myself as one of the other characters in the story that Jesus is bringing redemption and wholeness and healing to, um, and that he's walking with. And I think for me, that consistent reminder through all of this more like Jesus, um, season has just been absolutely beautiful to, to, even as in this, as we've gone old Testament, new Testament, old Testament, new Testament, looking at both that, how Jesus is both the fulfillment of everything that was lacking in all these sometimes great characters and sometimes not so great characters, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that, but not that I can be that fulfillment, but that I get to receive Jesus as my fulfillment and all those things and realize that I'm so much more like them than I wish I was. And it's not to have this like, I suck mentality where I'm like horrible and it's just, you know, where you're constantly just beating yourself about, up about how bad you are, but at the same time, have this understanding of the richness of who Jesus is for me has been, has been great. I've absolutely loved diving into that. And again, just the, almost even with the last question about hearing God's word, just consistently being in God's word, even as more than I was before, like, finding ways to be like, if I'm not reading it, I want to be listening to it. And if I'm not listening to it, I want to be like talking about it and understanding it and finding as much ways as possible to be like in his word and um, uh, just, just immersing myself in that so that uh, again, I can see the fullness of, of God's voice being taught being spoken to me and understanding it. So I think that's the biggest thing is just God realigning me with where I am in his grand story instead of uh again because i think a trap that can be easy is especially as ministers to fall into is is um like you're in a leadership position so you you tend to think of yourself as leading the flock type of thing and really realizing uh, jesus is the head of the church and he like there's there's nobody you know on his right or left side this side of heaven and so we just need to like stop feeling any like any level of like going up on that level, but just stay humble before him and, and see myself in that. So that for me has been one of the big things is just realizing that and embracing that um, in the season. And uh, yeah, just finally, I would like to encourage everybody as, as what I sense God's been encouraging me is that, you know, the word of God establishes the floor, the bare minute, like we all are on the same floor when it comes to the love of God. But I think sometimes that we believe that we get to set the ceiling for what is our love. And we all have the minimum. What is the least amount of love that God requires? We go back to the word of God, but then we say, okay, what is the maximum amount of love? And we get to determine that. Don't let the word of God just be the floor. Let the word of God be the ceiling 
Let Jesus be the ceiling. And more than that, let him raise the ceiling. Let him push the limits. Don't set the limits for your love. Let God and, and his word push the limits of what you can and can't do in your love. And I believe that if we allow Jesus to lift the ceiling, I mean, there's no, there will be no limits to our love. It will, will continue to grow and grow and grow until we are perfected in his love and uh, the day that we, that we go to be with him. So, um, yeah, so that's my encouragement. So that's it. I mean, that's February. <clears throat> and because February is now over, we look forward to, to warmer weather and uh, look, looking forward to then meeting up with you guys again uh, to recap March as we head into the Easter season. So thanks guys so much. Thank you, Pastor Jason, Thank you, Pastor Jeff, and uh, bless you all for being with us this past hour. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next month. Thank you.